If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. At this point in Luke's Gospel, Luke is focusing us not just on the details about Jesus, but on Jesus himself, about what he does and about how he explains who he is and what he has come to do. And last week we saw the beginning of people challenging him, of the religious establishment of the day, the religious and spiritual leaders of the day, not liking what they see in Jesus and seeking to come against him to thwart his authority. And now we see the same thing happening again, and yet even as these religious leaders would seek to... to uh, point out a flaw in Jesus, it provides him an opportunity to show that there is no flaw in him. In fact, there is only the perfection of joy that is awaiting any who would turn to faith in him. To see this, we want to look look at Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 33. Follow along as I read. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. May God bless the reading of his word. Everything in this passage is set up as a contrast between what is the old, the familiar, the traditional, and what Jesus is doing in the newness of his coming and his kingdom. What we have are a group of people that are, that are clinging to the past in a way that is not helpful. The, the past itself was helpful, it was beneficial, it was good, but that past was pointing to the present and to the future that had come in Jesus. And the people before him were not yet able to grasp it. And so Jesus is wanting to point to the fact that there is nothing that has ever come before that is like him. And that the newness of what God is doing is so new, is so great, is so magnificent, is so joyful that nothing can compare to it. In fact, the way that we think about God and live our life will completely change if we embrace Jesus and who He is and what He has done. Specifically, we see two things that will change for us in this passage. First, we see Jesus offers us a new relationship with God. Jesus offers us a new relationship with God. What will this new relationship look like? First of all, it will be marked with spiritual authenticity. With spiritual authenticity. Luke begins the scene by telling us that they said to Jesus, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Now Luke has already introduced the Pharisees to us. We saw them the previous two weeks. But who are these disciples of John? 
Well, before we answer that, we need to ask ourselves, who is the John that's being talked about here? Well, this is John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. We saw him earlier in the book. He was Jesus' cousin, but more importantly, he was Jesus' forerunner. He was the the last of the, the old covenant prophets who was able to stare Jesus in the face to see the promised Messiah in the flesh and say, there is the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And he prepared for Jesus' coming by calling for all of Israel to repent and make themselves ready for the coming of God. And he did this by baptizing them. And remember we said that this was traditionally within Judaism, within uh, the religion of the Old Covenant, a way that a Gentile, someone not born into the covenant, someone uh, steeped in paganism and sin, that they showed their death to that former life as they converted to Judaism. And now John says... That's good for everyone. That's good for everyone because ultimately all of you are sinners. And yes, you may be part of the old covenant structures. You may be a son or a daughter of the covenant. But what you need is faith in God marked by repentance. For God himself is about to come and save you. And so, just like Jesus, John had disciples. Men who followed him, who wanted to learn from him, who wanted to proclaim the same message that John was proclaiming. But these people identify those disciples look very different than Jesus' disciples. And that was a question for them because John was pointing to Jesus. John was saying, this is the guy that you should follow. This is the guy that you should believe in. But they see, we say, wait a minute. Well, then why don't his disciples look like your disciples? What is the difference that's going on here. Specifically, like the Pharisees, John's disciples made it a regular practice to fast. But they never see Jesus' disciples fasting. And they're wondering, why not? And again, this was more than a question about religious experience. This was more about uh, kind of uh, wanting to, to get some cultural insight onto these two religious groups. No, this was an implicit criticism of Jesus. In his day, the Pharisees had made it a common practice to fast two days a week as a reflection of the affliction of the soul. So every week, at least two days, they would be fasting. It came to be not just a personal display of piety, seeking after God, but a public display of piety. We know far less about John's disciples, but it seems obvious that fasting was also important to them, perhaps for the same reasons. It's important to note that inherently, there was nothing wrong with fasting. The problem came in this, specifically, that the Pharisees loved to fast before men more than before God. That their goal and the reason for their fasting was not to seek God's face as much as it was to be seen by the face of their fellow man. Why? Because they thought themselves to be incredibly righteous, and it was important that everybody else thought that too. Later, Jesus will say, that his disciples should not fast like the Pharisees. For they like to look gloomy, and they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. The Pharisees were not fasting to get more of God. They were fasting to get more popular with the people. They, they They were seeking to justify themselves, to feel good about their righteousness, and to make sure that everyone else knew it, as well. In other words, the Pharisees and their disciples were wrapped up in what was essentially a hollow spirituality. It looked good on the outside, but had nothing but emptiness on the inside. They lived for the reward of being seen as pious rather than for the reward of the righteousness of God. 
And when Jesus comes, He frees us from all of that. He frees us from all of that. Today we still have people that are involved in church and it's a performance mentality. They come and they show up and they're involved because they want others to think that they're doing really well, that they're really spiritual, that they're really righteous before God. They're involved in all kinds of ministries and they let you know about it. Not to the glory of God, but to the glory of themselves. They feel as if they must work and attain some standing with those around them. And when Jesus comes, he says, you don't need to do that anymore. You don't need to be worried about how others think about you. Because here is the most important thing. What does God think about you? And what God thinks about you is sure and certain because I have secured it for you. Through my saving work, I can tell you that God loves you and accepts you, and is patient with you. And therefore, what everyone else believes doesn't matter. We have a new relationship with God in Jesus. Not based on what we do or what others see us doing, but what Jesus has already done. And that frees us to live with complete authenticity before God and everyone else. But secondly, when Jesus comes and provides us a new relationship with God, apart from that of the Pharisees, or even John's disciples, we see not just spiritual authenticity, but a joyous association. A joyous association. Again, the specific issue that provokes this confrontation is the issue of fasting by the Pharisees and by the disciples of John. Remember that all of their religious practice would have been informed by the Old Testament, by the Old Covenant Scriptures. And there, we see there's only one day where fasting is explicitly required by the law, and that is on the Day of Atonement in Exodus chapter 20. However, throughout the Old Testament, by way of example, we see different individuals, different groups taking it upon themselves to fast for various reasons. And what we see through all of this is that the fasting of the Old Covenant was bound up in one thing, mourning and grief. Mourning and grief. You have people that would mourn the death of a loved one or a national leader. They mourn some calamity that befell them personally or the nation as a whole. And many times they mourned the sinfulness of their hearts. And all of that is wrapped up in the fasting practices of those who were standing before Jesus now. This is the fasting that is in their minds, the expression of an attitude of sobriety and solemnity. And it's not as if Jesus' followers were being somehow irreverent, but they never fasted. And if Jesus was a prophet from God, if he was truly from God, then why would he not embrace such a godly display of piety? In typical style, Jesus answers a question with a question. They say, how come you don't fast? And his response is, can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? He's immediately taken us into the the, the realm of weddings. This is something that I've been thinking a lot about because uh, thanks to the, the glories of the internet, we found the show called Say Yes to the Dress. And it's all about these brides who are spending way too much money on something they're only going to wear once. And and they bring too many people with them. And it gets catty and irritating. But it always ends with tears and a smile and a beautiful bride, right? And 
the point I'm making here is that you don't have to have a first-class degree in ancient Near Eastern studies to know where Jesus is going with this. Weddings are not a place for mourning, right? Maybe there's an ex-boyfriend or girlfriend in the back who got invited, and they're sad to see their old flag. But but you don't mourn at weddings. It is not tears of sadness, but tears of joy that flood the building. When you see the bride and the groom coming down and making vows and having the marriage solemnized by the pastor before God, all of that brings joy to our lives. And so the Pharisees make it a point of having this spiritual practice that is, that is bound up with, with mourning. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not what we're about right now. We're about joy. We're about weddings. We're about happiness. And all of that is true, not just in our day, but all the more so in Jesus' day. For in the Jewish culture of the first century, the bride and the groom didn't just fly off for a honeymoon somewhere the day after the wedding. Instead, they hosted in their home an entire week of open house, continual feasting and celebration. Immediately, I know some of you fathers who are about to pay for your bride's weddings are glad we don't live in first century Judaism, right? I mean, that, that gets expensive. For the average couple, this was considered to be the happiest week of their lives. The bride and the bridegroom were treated like royalty. Furthermore, the closest friends to the wedding guests, the ones who would have been there every day, the ones that would have been helping prepare and sell the food and, and would have taken the greatest delight and joy in the marriage were exempted from all religious duty, including fasting, that would have lessened their joy. That's exactly what the, what the rabbinic teaching said. All in attendance of the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observance would, would lessen their joy. Even, even the Pharisees, when their friends got married, they would have thrown fasting to the curb and said, it's time to party. It is time to rejoice. So bring out the wine, bring out the food, and let's party. These men have come with this, this mournful act of fasting. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Think wedding. Think wedding, because that is what I am about. After centuries of betrothal, of being engaged, uh, of this promise of the bridegroom who is going to come, he is now standing before you. I am here in your midst. You've had this old covenant, and it was good, and it served its purpose, but now, now in the in the light of this Galilean carpenter, the, the glory and the joy of the new covenant is beginning to dawn. It is not a time of mourning or fasting or grief. It is a time of joy. And the reality is, even now, if we have trusted in Christ, that attitude of joy should not go away. One humorist said that she was sitting in church one time and she observed a little girl turning around smiling at the guest sitting in the pew behind her, to which her Her mom yelled, stop that smiling, this is church. (laughs) Far too often, that's the reputation that we have, isn't it? Not just in church, but outside of church and how we live our lives, that we are dour, sour, pruned up people. And that's not what Jesus is about. That's not the kind of life that, 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 that we should live before God because Jesus has come and it should bring joy to our lives. We have fellowship with the eternal God. 
And the penalty for all of our sin has been, has been removed and we exist in fellowship with Him. We have been reconciled. We're no longer enemies, but friends of God. How can that, how can that not lead us to joy? That joy is accomplished finally by divine atonement. Divine atonement, the, the final way in which Jesus brings a new relationship for, between us and God. Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. These are important verses in Luke because Jesus is hinting both at his person and his work. Again, think about the Old Testament. Who is the bridegroom? You think about Isaiah 50 or Ezekiel 16 or the entire book of Hosea. God is always pictured as the bridegroom of Israel. All the while Israel is going after other gods, false gods from the nations. And the one true God is saying it's like a wife leaving her husband to go after other men. It is spiritual adultery while he stands as the faithful bridegroom. And what is Jesus saying here except he is that bridegroom. He is that bridegroom of Israel. He is God in the flesh, in their midst. Did they get that? No, I, I don't think they did. I think they're, they're too caught up in fasting to get the point that Jesus is hinting at here. It's also too early in his ministry to just come out and, and say such a thing. But nevertheless, that's where he's going. I am God. And I'm standing before you. And rather than, than haggling and complaining about who's fasting and who's not, you should be on your face weeping with joy that I am here before you and the reality of the new kingdom that I am bringing in. Part of what made it hard to see Jesus as the bridegroom of Israel, in fact, would be the, the gruesome death that he would suffer on the cross. Here again, the disciples surely didn't get it at first, but this is in the Gospel of Luke, the first hint that from Jesus' own lips that he is going to the cross. He says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. The word taken away is a, is a word of violence, uh, of a ripping apart. It's anticipating the time when Jesus is forcibly removed from the midst of his disciples by his death on the cross. Yet that removal was not an accident. It wasn't unintentional. It was not the it was not the unexpected result of a series of unfortunate events. Jesus knew this was his father's will and he joyfully embraced it for the salvation of his people. It was on the cross that Jesus bore God's wrath in our place, making it possible for us to find forgiveness with God. And though Jesus is raised back to life, he still does not stay with his disciples, but ascends back to the Father's right hand in heaven. And though Jesus is present with his people through the preaching of his word and the presence of his spirit, all of God's people should long for the day when we again see Jesus face to face. Like Thomas, we can behold scars in his hands and in his side. Like like John and Peter on the mountain, we can see the glory of the light of God beaming from his face. We should long for that day. But while we wait for that day, then it's okay to fast. Not in a kind of mourning grief of the old covenant, but an eager expectation that says, God, I, I so want to be with you. That this day, this week, I, I don't need to eat. 
I just need to sit down and feast on your word and on the joy of your presence. This is why Jesus says all, all of the stuff that, that you are clinging to, it doesn't work anymore. Because I am coming, I am doing something so amazing, so unthinkable, something that you cannot have possibly imagined unless God's own spirit opened your eyes to see. I'm going to offer my life as the perfect sacrifice for you. No more bulls, no more goats, no more bloods of animals. Me, son of God in the flesh. But now a whole new relationship with God is opened up for us. What does that lead us to? But a new way of living. This is the second thing that we see. Jesus calls, in light of that new relationship, He calls for a new way of living before God. What does that new way look like? Well, it's centered on Jesus Himself. More than that, it means that the way we live is completely transformed by Jesus. Jesus goes on in His interaction with these detractors. Luke tells us, In verse 36, that he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new. And the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. It will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says, the old is good. Luke says that Jesus told them a parable, which he does, but it's not a parable. It's actually three parables we see introduced by this repeated word, and. So what do we learn about how to live in light of the coming of Jesus? The first thing that we see is that we don't add him to old ways. We don't add him to old ways. Jesus says, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, it will tear, he will tear the new and the one piece and the new will not match the old. Now, now back in the day when I was younger, um, I used to play hard in my jeans and money was tight and so they would get patched at the knee. And thankfully it was the late 70s and the early 80s and patches on clothes were cool, right? It, it was actually fashionable. These days, I'm, I'm really not sure you get away with it. But if you don't care what people think, then, then, then go for it. That, that's good. But I never, I never had an old, I don't care how much I love those jeans. I never got a new pair of jeans and said, let's start cutting these up to patch up the old. Right? I mean, you just, you just don't do that for, for lots of reasons. Number one, it's a new pair of jeans. Who wants to ruin them right away? But specifically, uh, jeans, when you wash them, it's amazing. They, they move around. In terms of their, uh, in terms of their structure. That, that, that gene material expands in water, then shrinks up in the dryer. And suddenly, after repeated washings, the color fades, the size is different. It doesn't matter how much you stretch it out, it's not gonna look like the pair you picked up at the store of Van Lunens, which you don't have around here, but that's where I bought my jeans as a kid. So what's gonna happen? You're gonna, you're gonna put, you, you imagine cutting the hole out, getting a new piece of cloth and putting it on there, sewing it, making it look great. You're gonna wash the first time, and guess what's gonna happen? You're gonna get, a big piece of jean patch coming off in the wash. Why? Because the jeans have shrunk and shrunk and they're done shrinking. But not that new patch. And it's shrinking and it's shrinking and it's changing and everything else. And suddenly it's going to pop off. And, and, and the realm of physics has not changed in 2,000 years. The same was true in Jesus' time. Uh, yes, they want to preserve that old comfortable cloak. Uh, absolutely. But if they get the new one, they're not going to start cutting the new one up and patch up the old. They understand it's not going to work. Now, why is Jesus giving us this lesson on patching up old things? Well, it's because 
we think we think that very often it's okay to pretty much just keep living the way that we want, but just add Jesus on the end to make it all okay. It might be not because we actually believe in Jesus. It might be because we want to keep our, our family happy. It might be because we want to feel uh, good about ourselves. Uh, we, we can think of, of so many different ways that, uh, that, that we want to do this. But at the end of the day, um, that's not what Jesus is about. We, we don't get to just add him on to something new. Jesus comes and he is meant to completely transform our life. So you can imagine the Pharisees who are, who are steeped in the Old Covenant and they've got this system and they want to just keep moving in that system. And if Jesus is a, is a good teacher, sure, we'll, we'll add him into the group. We'll listen to what he says. And Jesus says, it doesn't work that way. I, I, don't, I don't just fit on. I'm, I'm not an add-on for you. I, I am something so much more. And he says the same thing to us today. If we're serious about Jesus, if we're serious about finding salvation with God and forgiveness for our sins, then we should not think that we're gonna, we're just gonna say a prayer, we might show up to church a couple of times, and basically our life is going to be the same, but we've got our fire insurance. It doesn't work that way. Jesus comes, and He does something so amazing, so fantastically new for us, that it completely blows up all of our old conceptions about how to live our life. We don't just add them on to something new. We experience a complete transformation. Everything should change. Likewise, Jesus says, just like you can't sew on a new patch onto an old piece of clothes, you can't put new wine into new wineskins. In other words, don't try to assimilate him into old thinking. Don't assimilate Jesus into old thinking. He offers another, par- another parable, verse 37. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Now, I know it may be hard to believe, but I know, actually know very little about wine. Whatever knowledge I have is from television and books. But scholars tell me, and I, and I trust them because enough of them say the same things, that you had wine carried around in Jesus' day in massive tanned animal skins. You literally had sheep that were essentially gutted in such a way that the skin was left intact. All the appendages were cut off, the openings were sewed up, and then the skins itself were cured, and apparently it made a great container for water or for wine. And as the wine began to ferment in that sheepskin bag, which you're just trying to imagine carrying this thing. I mean, do they have a shoulder, you know, I mean, strap? I mean, I don't know. But this is what they did. And when it was a fresh wineskin, it was somewhat elastic. And so as the fermentation process would take place and gases would expand in that bag, the bag would just expand right along with it, no problem. You untie the thing, get your drink, and tie it back up and move on. No problem. But the problem was the skins didn't last forever. I mean, some of you have leather shoes and leather handbags and leather coats, and you know if, if you don't treat them, the leather gets old and it cracks and it falls apart. And the same thing was true with the, the, the wineskin bags. And if you would try to take this old beloved bag that somebody gave you and put a bunch of new wine into it and that fermentation process would start up, guess what's going to happen? It's not going to expand the way it used to. It's going to get brittle, it's going to crack, and suddenly you not only ruin the bag, but you've lost the wine as well. That's what, that's the parable, the imagery that Jesus is getting us to see. So why is he giving us that parable? Again, what, what, what are we supposed to take away from this? 
The answer is this. Like the Pharisees, people are tempted to simply bring Jesus into and make him a part of their old way of thinking. In the first analogy, he's just kind of an afterthought, a tack on. It's like, yeah, get, get in the back of the bus, Jesus. Here, he may play an essential part, but he's still just the part. They're seeking to integrate him into a whole old system of thinking. It's a lot like Eastern uh, religions and other parts of the world. You, you can tell them about Jesus and about how great he is and the fact that he's God. And you're thinking, how, are they going to believe this? Like, yeah, sure, I'll believe in Jesus. And you're like, well, that's great. And you see him three months later and they're still going down to the to the to the Hindu temple, and you're like, what are you doing down there? Like, I'm going to go worship gods. I thought you worshiped Jesus. We worship him too. Now we have a million and one gods that we worship. We just add him right in. He's great. And you think, no, you've missed it. Jesus is not one of many. He is the exclusive king. He is the king above all kings, the Lord above all lords. He is the one who says all are meaningless and empty and vain and unreal in the light of my truth and my presence. Think about Jesus, the bridegroom, coming to save his people. And it changes everything. And the reality is his kingdom is going to keep growing like new wine. It's going to expand out from Israel to the nations of the world to the preaching of the gospel. And it's not enough for you to take Jesus and try and shove him into your old ways of thinking. For the Jews, he was the perfect sacrifice, the final prophet, the fulfillment of the law, the embodiment of the temple, the priest king who pours out his spirit on, in fullness on his people. And the, the fasting of the old covenant just doesn't fit that ministry anymore because the old covenant is fading away and the new covenant is coming into the world and is already there in Christ. Today, I know very few people who struggle with going back to the old covenant. But I see people all the time who struggle with things from their past that have informed their thinking about spiritual things. Whether it's a former church or a book or a friend or a pastor or a parent, they have this grid about what they think spiritual reality is like. And Jesus comes into that and he doesn't quite fit. They like Jesus. They see their need for Jesus, but they want to cling to all this old baggage of how they used to think about how to live their life and how to think about God and how to relate to people and how to vote and everything else. And Jesus coming in and he wants... He wants lordship over your life. He, he, he wants to take those things that are not truthful, those things that are not right, and do away with them. And we say, no, that's okay, Jesus. I like those things. Leave the furniture alone in the room. Jesus says, the furniture is old. It is moldy. You sit on that, and you're going to get a spring in your rear end. Don't do it. And we say, no, but I've had that forever. My parents gave it to me. And Jesus says, but it's no good. It's not useful. It's not helpful. It's not true. And, and we say, no, no, I just like it. You can't fit Jesus into your old way of thinking. We have to give up the old ways. And we have to see the truth and the grace and the joy that has come now in Jesus. You can imagine someone who, who is more well off than most of us and he spends thousands of dollars contracting out this massive lush garden that he puts into his backyard. So that as he stands on the, the, the third level balcony, he looks out and he's just thinking, this is amazing, it's a great view. But right in the middle, right in the middle is, is an apple tree that his mother planted a couple weeks after he was born. So as the tree grew, the kid grew, and their lives were forever intertwined, but this tree is garbage. It produces nothing but bitter fruit. Old, rotten, you cannot stand to eat it. 
This guy has spent thousands of dollars on but he his mom planted that tree. Come on. How can I cut that thing down? And yet every year he sees these old, nasty, deformed pieces of fruit and he just thinks they look terrible. And so one day he gets somebody to go down to Jack's for him and buy bag after bag after bag of giant, lush, honey crisp apples and he goes out there and he yanks off all those old things and begins tying up all these lush apples. What has he done? He's made something that looks great, right? If you go up... Within a couple of days, at least, maybe, you'll be able to pick fruit and eat, and it will probably be pretty good. But he's not changed the tree. The tree is still there. It's still rotting. It still needs to be cut down because it's producing nothing good. He's not made any fundamental change. And so many people treat Jesus like a fresh apple attached to an old tree. You are the old tree. Your thinking is the old tree. Your heart is the rotten fruit-producing monstrosity that is sitting in the midst of God's glorious garden. And Jesus says, let me just tear you down and replant you, and you'll produce amazing fruit. And we say, but God, I like my sin. I like the way I do things. I like my life the way it is. Can't you just fit in? And he says, no, I am the king. I am the sovereign. I am the Lord. And if you continue to do that, nothing but garbage is going to be produced by your life. But if you let me come in, if you let me come in and, and fill you with joy and my spirit, you will love the fruit that comes out of your life. You, you will delight to see what you are producing and those around you will delight to see it as well. In the end, God will be glorified by what I produce in your life. We can't add them on. We can't assimilate them in. And finally, Jesus says, We can't avoid him with old preferences. Don't avoid Jesus with old preferences. This last verse, verse 39, is a little bit tricky because Jesus says, no one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says, the old is good. And we say, wait a minute, Jesus, you've been talking about new wine and that's you. So, uh, but, but now the person is saying, I don't want the new wine. I want what is good. That's the point. He, he, he's flipped the imagery. Now you've got a person who has, who has grown up all their life drinking one vintage. He's always been having the old wine and it's great and, and, and maybe, maybe it wasn't that great the first couple of years that he had it, but he's acquired the taste for it. This is what he's always had and he loves it. And, and someone comes and they say, I've got this new fresh wine which is luscious and full bodied and, and in every way better from what you're drinking. What, taste and see that it is good. And they say, no thanks. I'm not, I'm not interested in the new wine. The old is just fine for me. Thank you very much. You say, but, but you don't understand, this, this is better. I mean, this is so much better than you can imagine. I mean, just, just take a sip, just try it. Nope, I've had the old, the old is good, I'm staying with it. I don't want the new wine. Jesus is looking at the Pharisees and they say, don't let that man be you. You are clinging to this, this old vintage that is about to be dried up. It... it, it The vineyard is not going to be producing that grape anymore. A new kingdom is coming with a new vineyard and a new wine. Do not be caught avoiding me. Do not be caught turning your back on me. Just come and taste and see that I am good. I am the Lord your God. But in their minds, they weren't sinners. They were righteous. They didn't need a Savior. They didn't want what Jesus was offering. And still today, 
Still today, inside and outside the church, we have people that avoid Jesus. They give him lip service. They're around Christians, but they inherently will not yield. They will not actively put their faith in them because they inherently believe there's nothing really wrong with me. There's nothing really wrong with me. But Jesus himself says there is something wrong with you. You are child of the first man, Adam. And as a result of his sin, you have sin. Not simply because you occasionally do something bad, but because your heart is sinful and therefore it will only produce sin. But I can give you a new heart, Jesus says. I can take away that sinful heart and I can make you not a child of Adam, but a child of God, my brother or sister by faith. And now you will have a heart that beats with love for God and produces the kind of fruit not only leads to a life of righteousness, but salvation and life in fullness with God. The question is, what are you going to do with Jesus? Are you going to say, I don't need him, I don't need the Savior? Or are you going to say, I, I need a Savior, I need Jesus, and bow the knee and trust him, throw your life up at his feet, depending upon him and everything that he's done to bring you to the living God? Christian, what about you this morning? Are you, are you stuck in your old ways? Do you, do you have those ways of thinking that you are comfortable with and unwilling to change even though you're wrong? Do you have those sins that, that, that are, are in your life like weeds, but you've grown accustomed to the weeds? That those weeds give you comfort and therefore you, you don't want the master gardener to rip them out and to plant in the new flower beds of his virtue and righteousness then you're not only missing out on the joy of Jesus, but you are refusing His Lordship over your life. In one of the other accounts of this parable, Luke does not record the words, but Jesus at the end says that He's coming back, the bridegroom is coming, but will He find faith on the earth? That's that's the question that should ring in our hearts and minds for all of us, wherever we're at today. How are we living before God? Are we living in a way that evidences we have faith in Jesus? It may be a small faith, but it doesn't matter because it's faith in Jesus. And therefore, it is true faith. Or are we too wrapped up in what we believe? our old ways of thinking, our old ways of doing things, that we really are kind of standoffish with Jesus. We're not willing to yield Him complete control of our lives and let Him love us the way the bridegroom desires to love the bride in a way that is only good for her. I pray that we will see the joy and the newness of what Jesus has come and we will fully embrace it for our good and for God's glory. Father, that is our prayer this morning. But it begins with acknowledging that there is no Savior except for Jesus, your Son. That there is no other joy, true and lasting joy, apart from Jesus, our Bridegroom. So God, we pray that you would help us to trust Him enough to abandon our old way of thinking, our old preferences, our old sinful hearts. And to be willing to follow Him, God, wherever He leaves, wherever He directs us to go, knowing that we can trust Him and that there is only joy, the deepest kind of joy that awaits in His presence. 
God, we ask these things in His name. Amen.